Father, we do thank you this morning again um, for this gift of the Lord's Day, the gift of a day set apart for worship and rest um, in your presence and with one another as your people. Father, as we, um, as, we, as we prepare for worship now in our Sunday school class, as we um, soften and ready our hearts for that encounter with you, uh, we pray that you would uh, dwell with, with us, Father, by your Spirit, that you would grant us wisdom even as we um, study the, uh, a writing um, of old um, that, is, that is good for us. We pray that you do this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so about this is the fourth year in a row where as a church we have spent the sort of winter term, sort of the, the advent, we're almost in advent, um, and maybe a first few weeks of Christmas and Epiphany season, um, studying an old book. Um, so three years ago we looked at um, uh, uh, On the Incarnation by Athanasius, so a really old book. Um, uh, then two years ago, we looked at Dietrich Bonhoeffer's book, Life Together, that was written in the 1930s um, about his experiences um, within the Christian community in Germany um, that he was leading. Um, and then uh, last year, we took an extended look at the Institutes of John Calvin and went through that book um, for a very long time. So, so we have this practice of reading old books together um, as a church at least once a year. And so why do, we, why do we do this? I want to start this morning just by um, reading a few excerpts from C.S. Lewis's um, introduction to On the Incarnation, actually, um, where he writes about the value of old books and why this is a, a good practice, a wise practice for us to engage in as Christian believers. Uh, Lewis writes, he says, Naturally, since I myself am a writer, I do not wish the ordinary reader to read no modern books, but if he must read only the new or only the old, I would advise him to read the old. A new book is still on its trial, and the amateur is not in a position to judge it. It has to be tested against the great body of Christian thought down the ages and all its hidden implications, often unsuspected by the author himself, have to be brought to light. The only safety is to have a standard of plain central Christianity, mere Christianity, as Richard Baxter called it, which puts the controversies of the moment in their proper perspective. Such a standard can only be acquired from the old books. It is a good rule after reading a new book never to allow yourself another new one till you have read an old one in between. If that is too much for you, you should at least read one to every three new ones. He goes on to say, every age has its own outlook. It is especially good at seeing certain truths and especially liable to certain mistakes. We all, therefore, need the books that will correct the characteristic mistakes of our own period, and that means the old books. None of us can fully escape this blindness, but, where, but we shall certainly increase it and weaken our guard against it if we read only modern books. We'll be more susceptible to that blindness of the age if we only read modern books. Where they are true, they will give us truths which we already half knew. Where they are false, they will aggravate the error with which we are already dangerously ill. The only palliative is to keep the clean sea breeze of the centuries blowing through our minds, and this can only be done by reading old books. Not, of course, that there is any magic about the past. People were no more cleverer then than they are now, but they made as many mistakes as we, but not the same mistakes. That's the key point here, I think. Not the same mistakes that we're liable to make. They will not flatter us in the errors we are already committing, 
and their own errors being now open and palpable, palpable will not endanger us. Two heads are better than one, not because either is infallible, but because they are unlikely to go wrong in the same direction. To be sure, the books of the future would be just as good a corrective as the books of the past, but unfortunately, we cannot get at them. Y'all see the argument that Lewis is making here? The argument basically is that we all have a, 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 a number of assumptions that we make about reality that we all basically share in common because of our time. And a great way to get beyond that blindness that we have to our own presuppositions, our own assumptions about reality that are unquestioned is to read someone who doesn't share them. And that means going back in time because we can't go forward in time. So we read old books um, partly as a way um, to, to, to expose ourselves to someone else who had different blind spots than we do, um, and so to correct our own. Also, as, as Lewis states, um, you know, there are, you know, who knows how many thousands or hundreds of thousands, probably books published every year um, that you could read. Which, how are you going to know which of those are good, right? Which of those are actually worth your time? It's really hard, actually. Um, people make a living trying to help you determine which of the hundreds of thousand books published every year are, are worth your time. But one way to do it that's a little more sure is to say, well, what books are people still reading 100 years later, right? What books are still um, important um, and being discussed and talked about? And so there, there's a value in that, right? We could read a modern book um, together, but who knows in 15 years if anybody's going to be, if it'll stand the test of time, if it's important enough to have stuck around. But when we read old books, we have books that have, that have stood the trial of the centuries and have, um, and have been, still been read because they're valuable in that way. So I think there's some assurance also in reading old books that it's good for us. So this, um, this winter, we're going to be reading an old book called Lectures on Calvinism by Abraham Kuyper. And that's the book that we're going to be covering um, this, this winter. And I bought, um, the church bought rather, 12 copies of this book, and they're up here. So if you would like a copy and to read, actually read, um, over the next six weeks or so, come and grab it. They're here for you. So one per family, of course, but please come and grab one, and they're $8. So if you feel like putting $8 in the offering plate, that's great. If not, that's fine. It's a gift to you. But seriously, we want to make those books available to you. I'd love to see that box empty um, after Sunday school, and we can always order some more if we need to. So, so we really want this to be an exercise in reading books together, this, this little habit that we have every year. And so really, the Sunday school class that I'm going to teach and Patrick's going to teach with me um, is on this book, Lectures of Calvinism, is not so much going to be us trying to summarize for you the thought of Abraham Kuyper, but actually trying to give you the actual words of Abraham Kuyper, the actual words of these lectures that he gave in 1898, over 120 years ago, um, so that you can hear them, so you can read them, so that you can take them in and be exposed to them sort of full throttle, right, without, you know, my blind spots, um, uh, you know, getting in the way, so to speak, but rather hearing directly from Abraham Kuyper. Um, so who was Abraham Kuyper? Abraham Kuyper, and I've taken some of these details from a, a resource online that I found from David Noggle, who's a professor at Dallas Baptist. Um, Kuyper was born in the Dutch town, um, and I'm going to say this, try to say that, near Rotterdam on October 29, 1837. Okay, so he was born, what, almost 200 years ago now, right? So that's, that's definitely a different era, 1837, right, before 
the American Civil War, before um, many of the changes that we um, assume today. Um, in, in 1863, he wrote a dissertation on John Calvin at university, which really, of course, was one of the marker and changes of his life, that he studied John Calvin for about seven years there and really became to be influenced by his thought. Um, in 1872, um, Nagel writes that Kuiper founded and became the chief editor of the newspaper, The Standard, incorporating within itself a religious weekly. Um, the newspaper became the chief journalistic, journalistic organ of the Revolutionary Party, and so over a 50-year period, Kuiper wrote thousands of articles on political, cultural, and educational issues. Through these articles, Kuiper dominated the political and religious um, topics that were debated in the Netherlands for almost half a century. This is one of the things you think about who Abraham Kuyper is that you need to know, that he was a public figure. He was a celebrity. He was, you know, much more so than Tim Keller, right? Tim Keller is like a, a public intellectual today um, that we have familiarity, but Kuyper's like way beyond that, right? Um, Kuyper was someone that everyone in the Netherlands knew about and heard of. I mean, he was like, you know, a talking head on CNN or something, you know, somebody that is, is just known as a, a trusted source on the events of the day, giving his commentary, not just on Christian issues, but on all kinds of issues, um, uh, political, cultural, um, whatever might be newsworthy. Um, Kuiper was writing an article about it, and people were reading it. Um, and so that, that's something just to really know about Kuiper, that he, he's not fundamentally a theologian, in some ways, fundamentally, he's a public figure who also happens to write uh, theology. Um, uh, he founded a political party, the Anti-Revolutionary Party in 1879, the first modern political party in the Netherlands, which is a fascinating thing. He's, he dedicated much of his life to politics. Um, so this is not some guy that was in the ivory tower, so to speak. Um, he founded the Free University of Amsterdam in 1880, which continues to be an important uh, university. Um, in the Netherlands. He actually served as prime minister of the Netherlands, um, so had one of the highest political offices in the nation um, from 1901 to 1905. So for five years, he was in that office as a representative of the people, um, as a Christian, leading his political party that he had founded. Um, so this is, again, not a man who just sort of, you know, uh, was hidden away, but was in a, in a totally public life. And the Stone Lectures, which comprise the book that we're reading, and these were six lectures that he gave in 1898 when he came to America um, at Princeton Seminary. He came to receive an honorary degree from Princeton University, and Princeton Seminary asked him at the same time to deliver the Stone Lectures, which were lectures given each year by a leading intellectual um, to the seminary community. Um, and so these, this was an opportunity for him to come to the United States um, and to really have a public voice there. And it's actually really fascinating to me that, that he was able to give these lectures in English, and they have, you know, continued on. That's how we read them today, right? We don't read them in translation. Um, we read them in the English that Kuiper wrote, um, uh, which was obviously at least a second language. Um, so, it, you know, just a fascinating man, an intellectual man, a genius in many ways. Um, and Kuiper is really known for founding what is known today as what's called neo-Calvinism. So neo-Calvinism is basically the application of Calvin's thought um, to the sort of modern modernity, essentially. Um, so, so an application of Calvin um, to the more modern world, a development of those Calvinistic ideas. And it's important when, when Kuiper talks about Calvinism here, he's not really talking about, in, in some narrow way, the thought of uh, John Calvin. He's certainly talking about Calvin as the, as the beginning of that thought, but he's really talking about classic Protestantism, especially as it is expressed in the Reformed tradition, 
the tradition that we've received, but also the tradition of the continental uh, Europe, um, of, of, of um, Germany, of the Netherlands, of France, and not only sort of the English-Scottish tradition that is codified in the Westminster Standards that we've received here. Um, so he's, he's speaking out Calvinism in a, in a broad way, certainly in a much broader way um, than, you know, just quote-unquote tulip or whatever, right? And that's one of the things we talked about in our core values class, that we're a Reformed church, but to be Reformed leads a lot more than just believing that God predestines the elect and saves them, um, you know, without their own, uh, you know, their own doing, right? That actually to be Reformed means a great deal more than that. And Kuiper is one of the best modern statements, statesmen about what uh, that Reformed uh, perspective means for all of life, uh, not simply our salvation, but all of life. That's something he was constantly concerned with, was the application of the Christian faith, what the scriptures taught to the entirety of life. And he uses that word Calvinism to describe that, but he really doesn't just simply mean John Calvin and his thought. He means a broader tradition that he himself is a part of. So he died in 1920, over 100 years, or almost 100 years ago. Any questions about any of that? Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. makes the claim that the lectures at Princeton mm-hmm. is what drove Woodrow Wilson into his apostasy and leaving the Presbyterian Church. And That's interesting. Um, Kuiper's lectures. Kuiper's lectures huh. did that to Wilson. That's interesting. He's so angry. Well, there you go. <laughs> Apparently they impacted Woodrow Wilson 120 years ago. Yeah. Okay, That's fascinating. I've not heard that. There you go. Yeah, Ben. I believe so. Yeah. Someone else can. Yeah, it was there. Yeah. 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 So Warfield would have been there. And yeah, some of the, yeah, Voss, some of the heavy hitters, um, so to speak, of, of that period, late 19th century Reformed theology. You know, and Princeton was at that time, in case you don't know, sort of the, the, the epicenter of Reformed theology in America um, at that time. Um, it's not necessarily that way anymore, but that was the case at that time. So that, yeah, it's an important thing to think about, that men like Warfield or Voss would have been listening to these lectures and interacting with, with Kuiper. All right, here, just to help us historically, here's some events that happened in 1898, just to kind of get your mind wrapped around that period. The Spanish-American War started and ended that year. Um, so Teddy Roosevelt led the charge at San Juan Hill. You might have heard about that in Cuba, right? That's a historical event that happened. William McKinley was the U.S. president, which I think he might have the distinction of being one of the least known presidents. Um, ever. I, honestly, I can't tell you anything really about William McKinley. Maybe you can. Uh, maybe you're a scholar of McKinley, but I thought that was interesting. I sort of had to do a double take when I read those. Like, yeah, McKinley, he was president, wasn't he, at one point? Um, so, U.S. annexed the Hawaiian Islands in 1898. So, that's a pretty fascinating thing, I think. There was the first fatality from an automobile accident in London um, in recorded history. So, that's a that's an interesting thing. Apparently, a, a guy was, he didn't hit somebody else, he killed himself. He was in his new automobile and it rolled down a hill and hit a tree. Um, and that was, that was a historical event. Um, also, the American pharmacist Caleb Brandom named his soft drink Pepsi-Cola. So you might have heard of that. So Pepsi-Cola over 120 years ago. So these are just some of the you know, things that were taking place um, within the culture at that time. Um, any, any further context or background questions before we jump into the the details of this text. Yeah, James. Maybe this stuff could be helpful 
I, I, yeah, I don't, I don't honestly know the, I'm not an expert in the, anybody know much about 19th century, late 19th century Dutch politics or, yeah, I, I really don't. I mean, histor- here's what I can say in general, that, that the Netherlands um, were at one time a very distinctively Calvinistic reformed culture, right? Even in a way, even more so than Britain. Um, and so, you know, because of the way in which, uh, you know, the canons of Dort, those kinds of things. So my, uh, my impression, just generally from knowledge of that time, is that um, because modernism was impacting Europe more quickly than it was the United States, um, because of the proximity of France and, you know, Germany and some of the debates that were happening there, that he was really caught in this battle of a historically... Uh, Christian culture, very distinctively Christian, really one of the most, something we don't talk about a whole lot, but really the Netherlands had one of the most distinctive Christian cultures in Europe um, after the Reformation, um, distinctively Christian. Um, and, but it w- they were encountering at this time, really in a new way, the influence of modernism, um, the rejection of God, those kinds of things. So he was sort of, you know, further down that path than would have, w- those debates would not have felt quite as pressing in the United States at that time, but they were more pressing for him. So that, maybe that's helpful in terms of, yeah, just some of the context there. All right, so let's jump into this first lecture. So the, the book is made up of six lectures. Um, the titles are as follows. Let's see, let me pull them out here. First lecture, Calvinism as a life system. Second lecture, Calvinism and religion. Third lecture, Calvinism and politics. Third, fourth lecture, Calvinism and science. Fifth lecture, Calvinism and art. Sixth, Calvinism and the future. So you can see that Kuyper's concerns here are not merely, uh, quote-unquote, um, theological in a, in a strict and narrow sense, but he's really seeking to, to talk about the impact of, uh, of Reformed Christianity on all these different arenas of life. And of course, this is one of Kuyper's uh, major convictions was that there's not one square inch in the universe that Jesus does not say mine, right? That he does not claim sovereignty over. Um, all of life belongs under his lordship. And, and Kuiper really sought to apply that um, to all of life and think about what that meant. So this first lecture is really just sort of setting the groundwork for the ones that will follow that will go into more depth on these different areas like science and politics and art and religion. Um, here he's just talking about Calvinism as a life system. And at, at that word life system, he also uses in these lectures the, world, the word worldview, which is probably a word that you're familiar with. It's a word that Kuiper is actually one of the originators of, um, this word worldview that comes from a German word um, that I don't remember off the top of my head, but that, that he's part of the sort of genesis of that word that we now use all the time to describe our basic approach to life, our fundamental assumptions. Um, Kuiper was one of the originators of that word, and he's using the word life system as a synonym. So Christianity as a life system, Christianity as a worldview, or Calvinism rather, um, is, is sort of, he's trying to lay the groundwork in this lecture for those things. So let me just read some of this, and you guys listen, and we'll talk about it as we go. So one of the first thing he, and I've just given you a pretty heavily excerpted um, handout here of, of, the, of the chapter. I've left out a lot, but I think I've given us enough um, to get a sense for his argument. So he starts um, by talking about modernism and the threat of modernism to, um, to, to people today, to Christianity in particular. 
He says, in deadly opposition to this Christian element, against the very Christian name, and against its, um, its salutiferous influence in every sphere of life, the storm of modernism has now arisen with violent intensity. In 1789, the turning point was reached. What happened in 1789? French Revolution, right? Interestingly, Kuiper was closer in 1898 to the French Revolution than he was to our day, right? So he actually, the French Revolution was, a, you know, was, was not that long ago, so to speak, just a little over 100 years. In 1789, the turning point was reached. Voltaire's mad cry, down with the scoundrel, was aimed at Christ himself. And this is sometimes, you know, we don't talk about this a whole lot sometimes, but the French Revolution was not only uh, in some ways a working out of democratic principles, it was also a rebellion against God, very directly, right? Very atheistic in terms of its, um, its, its clenched fist against the, the domain, the authority of God. Yes, especially the authority of God is expressed in the Roman Catholic Church in France, but underneath that, an, an, a, a rebellion against God himself. Um, but this cry was merely the expression of the most hidden thought from which the French Revolution sprang. The fanatic outcry of another philosopher, we no more need a God, and the odious shibboleth, no God, no master of the convention, that is the convention that, that established the French Revolution. These were the sacrilegious watchwords which at that time heralded the liberation of man as an emancipation from all divine authority. And of course, this is one of the fundamental differences between the American Revolution and the French Revolution, right? That, that the American, uh, those who led the American Revolution had a fundamentally different um, approach to God and his authority. Um, and, that, that's, and, and to get back to the idea of Europe and the Netherlands, Netherlands was, of course, much more directly affected by the French Revolution and the thought that came out of that um, than the United States were, at least at that time. So he goes on, he talks about, so this context of modernism is what's in his mind. He says, there's no doubt then that Christianity is imperiled by great and serious dangers. Two life systems, two worldviews are wrestling with one another in mortal combat. What are those two worldviews? Modernism is bound to build a world of its own from the data of the natural man and to construct man himself from the data of nature, while on the other hand, all those who reverently bend the knee to Christ and worship him as the son of the living God and God himself are bent upon saving the Christian heritage. And this would have much more been the, the sort of tenor of the time. Today, we might say that we live in a post-Christian age in some ways in the West. In 1898, it still felt like you know, that from Kuiper's perspective, that he was trying to protect something, protect a tradition, that modernism was the, you know, they were the new kids on the block, right? And he was protecting this, this history, uh, this Christian history that Europe was a participant in and the Netherlands was a participant in. This is the struggle in Europe. This is the struggle in America. And this is also the struggle for principles in which my own country is engaged, in which I've been spending all my energy for nearly 40 years, Then he makes this really interesting statement. He says, in this struggle against modernism, apologetics have advanced us not one single step. Apologetics, apologists rather, have been invariably begun by abandoning the assailed breastwork in order to entrench themselves cowardly and unravel in behind it. It's interesting. I think that the opposition to apologetics that that, that, um, Kuiper's making here is pretty similar in some ways to um, the, the opposition that, that Van Til would make later um, in the United States, that, that people who are doing apologetics are often 
um, having to assume basic things that modernism assumes in order to deconstruct the arguments of modernism. And so he wants to say, be very careful when you do apologetics that you're not making basic assumptions that are outside of your, basic, your, your fundamental life system, your fundamental worldview. Because really, the conflict between modernism and Christian thought is one that's fundamental in nature. Um, and so you have to be really thoughtful about how you engage it. Um, so he goes on, he talks about how modernism is an all-embracing life system, and, and, he ha- and there must be another life system to combat it, because modernism seeks to, to describe all of life. Calvinism, um, and by that he just means classic Christianity, must embrace a, 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 a different life system, and they, they sort of combat against each other. Um, and he, he describes the, a life system as having, must have three fundamental relations of all human life, assumptions about those things that can be articulated. Our relation to God, our relation to man, and our relation to the world. And you might, these questions might sound familiar, right? This, if you get a workbook on a worldview, right, the world, a worldview book, they're going to talk about these questions, right? What does Islam say about our relation to God? What does Islam say about our relationship to man? What does Islam say about our relationship to um, the world, to creation, right? These are the kinds of, th- and this, it's important to see that these kinds of questions as a way of understanding an overall approach to um, an intellectual system or a system of belief that Kuiper was the one who really originated those things and articulated those things for the first time. So he's going to spend the rest of his lecture talking about what does Calvinism say about our relationship to God, our relationship to man, our relationship to the world, and how is it? He's going to, if you read the chapter, he goes a lot in terms of distinguishing that from other uh, worldviews, so to speak, other life systems. He talks about paganism, uh, Islam, uh, Roman Catholicism, um, and also modernism as competing sort of systems of thought with Calvinism, although he does it chronologically, which is interesting. He, he, you know, he really feels like in his day, modernism is the competing worldview, but he, he sees the thought of really the human race as developing from paganism um, to Islam to Roman Catholicism um, to Calvinism, and then finally uh, modernism is now locked in this great struggle. So it's, it's an interesting chronological argument that he makes as well, um, just as you think about human history. Okay, so Calvinism and our relationship to God. Here's what he says. He says, Calvinism proclaims the exalted thought that although standing in high majesty above the creature, God enters into immediate fellowship with the creature. And that word immediate is really important, as God the Holy Spirit. Um, And here he doesn't mean that God doesn't use means like the word or sacrament or prayer um, to be fellowshipping with us. But what he really wants to say is that Calvinism really has this principle that God works on us directly, not through another human mediator. This is a huge distinction that he draws with the Roman Catholic Church, for example. He says that the basic principle of the Roman Catholic Church is that the church as an institution mediates between God and man, and especially in her priesthood and those kinds of things. Does that make sense? So the word immediately there is not disparaging things like God working through the scriptures or God working through sacraments, um, but that God, there's no human intermediary between you and God other than the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the heart and kernel, he says, of the Calvinistic confession of predestination. There is communion with God, but only entire accord with his counsel of peace from all eternity. 
There, thus, there is no grace but such as comes to us immediately from God, right? God is the originator of all grace. Nothing gets between us and God in terms of the dispensing of his grace to us, his love, his mercy. There is this direct confrontation between God and man, um, he says, that is at the heart of classic Calvinism and Christian thought that is absolutely distinctive. At every moment of our existence, our entire spiritual life rests in God himself, The Deo soli gloria, right, God alone be the glory, was not the starting point but the result, and predestination was inexorably maintained, not for the sake of separating man from man, nor in the interest of personal pride, but in order for a guarantee from eternity to eternity to our inner self, a direct and immediate communion with the living God. So he says, basically, this is the fundamental insight of Calvinism in regards to our relationship with God, that God is the originator that God directly deals with us individually. And so that means that all of our life is lived before God. There is no part of our life that is separated from him because of his sovereignty, because of his initiation of grace, because he deals with us uh, immediately without some kind of mediation that we come to on Sunday mornings um, to receive God. Uh, But we actually deal with him directly always. He also makes this, I think, kind of fascinating comment about Lutheranism as an aside. He says, Luther, as well as Calvin, contended for a direct fellowship with God, but Luther took it up from its subjective anthropological side and not from its objective cosmological side as Calvin did. Luther's starting point was the special soteriological principle of a justifying faith. Right? That was Luther's basic question is, how am I to be saved? Right? Uh, well, Calvin's extending far wider lay in the general cosmological principle of the sovereignty of God. Calvin, and if you read the Institutes, this is how it works. He starts with God's sovereignty, not with how can a man be saved. And so, so Lutheranism and Calvinism have different starting points, and that works itself out in really different ways as you see their theology. So I think it's a kind of an aside, but I think it's really interesting insight that he makes there about the differences. And so Lutheranism often ends up with a much more narrow vision of life because, because of that focus on how can a sinner be saved? What is the way of salvation? The persuasion that a whole of a man's life is to be lived as in the divine presence, so all the earth is the temple of God, we deal with him always, has become the fundamental thought of Calvinism. By this decisive idea, or rather by this mighty fact, It has allowed itself to be controlled in every department of its entire domain. It is from this mother thought that the all-embracing life system of Calvinism sprang. You can hear some of his colloquialisms, right, as a a non-native English speaker. This mother thought, I like that. That's good. Um, So do you you guys see what he's arguing here in terms of the basic insight of Calvinism regarding our relationship to God? Any questions about that? thoughts. All right, let me continue to, to work through here. Calvin and all, Calvinism and our relationship to man. Okay, I think, it's, I think one of the interesting things about reading this, these lectures are how well Kuiper anticipates and, and identifies modernism as a thought system, as a life system, and the ways that it gets worked out and will be worked out in the century after his death. Um, Here's what he describes about modernism in terms of its understanding of our relationship to one another as human beings. 
Modernism, which denies, and this is again, modernism he sees as something coming directly out of the French Revolution, the Enlightenment, and all those kinds of things. Modernism, which denies and abolishes every difference. Does that sound familiar? Remember, this was 1898, right? Cannot rest until it has made woman man and man woman. That's a prophetic statement, I think. And putting every distinction on a common level kills life by placing it under the ban of uniformity. I think that's really fascinating in terms, you know, he, they were not dealing with the kinds of gender discussions that we were um, 120 years ago, that we are now. But Kuiper really anticipates the way in which modernism is likely to be worked itself, work itself out eventually in, in human thought. One type must answer for all, one uniform, one position, and one in the same development of life. And whatever goes beyond and above it is looked upon as an insult and as an insult to the common consciousness. This is a fundamental idea of modernism in terms of how human beings are to relate to one another. So we draw some distinctions here. He says, if Calvinism places our entire human life immediately before God, then it follows that all men or women, rich or poor, weak or strong, dull or talented, as creatures of God and as lost sinners, have no claim whatsoever to lord over one another, and that we stand as equals before God, and consequently equal as man to man. So he says there is equality within the idea of Calvinism, this direct relationship to God, living our lives before the face of God, but not uniformity. That's going to be a key distinction that he's going to make. There is equality, but not conform, or conformity, not, not uniformity. Hence, Calvin con, Calvinism condemns not merely all open slavery and systems of caste, but also all covert slavery of women and of the poor. It is opposed to all hierarchy among men. It tolerates no aristocrat, aristocracy, save such as are able, either in person or in family, by the grace of God to experience superiority of character or talent, and to show that it does not claim the superiority for self-aggrandizement or ambitious pride, but for the sake of spending it in the service of God. I think that's really fascinating, the, the way that he talks about um, that, that Calvinism, in its essence at least, and we could discuss historically, has Calvinism always really condemned slavery um, or any kind of caste system? And unfortunately, it hasn't, right? Um, there, there are a number of examples where that's not been the case, both in our country and also in places like South Africa and other places. Um, so that's important to say. But I think, I think Kuiper's right that in its essence, Calvinism uh, should be condemning those things. And sometimes because of the sin of humanity and the weakness of men and rebellion against God, it does not. People who call themselves Calvinists do not condemn these things. But there is that fundamental assumption that all of us are, are equal before God and are made in God's image and so there is a fundamental equality. He goes on and says, but he does say that there can be differences based on gifts and resources and things that are given. So Calvinism was bound to find its utterance in the democratic interpretation of life, to proclaim the liberty of nations and not to rest until both politically and socially every man, simply because he is a man, should be recognized, respected, and dealt with as a, cre- as a creature created after the divine likeness. So this is actually, according to Kuiper, a fundamental idea regarding Calvinism, that, that we are all made in the likeness of God and therefore should have equality in the way that we, we um, 
organize ourselves. And he's going to talk about that in his lecture on politics, especially, right? That there is actually a democratic principle, um, which is at the heart of Calvinism. And, and of course, you see this historically, right? And the nations that embrace this kind of um, religious thought um, actually work out a democratic republic sort of system of government, right? Places like England, places like the Netherlands, places like um, uh, the United States, right? That, that this, these sort of assumptions about reality and about what it means to relate to one another as human beings work themselves out politically. To have placed man on a footing equal of equality with man, as far as the purely human interests are concerned, is the immortal glory which incontestably belongs to Calvinism. The difference between it and the wild dream of equality of the French Revolution. So there are some similarities, he, he acknowledges, but what's the difference? The difference is that while in Paris, it was one action in concert against God. So there was equality against God, throwing off God's authority. Here all, rich and poor, were on their knees before God, consumed with the common zeal for the glory of his name. Let me read this last section here. Calvinism on our relationship to the world, and then we'll take some questions. So before God, um, there's, a, there's an immediate, direct relationship to God for each person. With one another, there's a fundamental equality because of our all being made in God's likeness and image um, that should influence the way that we deal with one another. Equality but not uniformity, and equality in submission to God rather than in a rebellion against him. And then finally, what is Calvinism's relationship to the world? What does it teach regarding our relationship to the world, rather? Calvinism has wrought an entire change in the world of thoughts and conceptions. And this also placing itself before the face of God, it has not only honored man for the sake of his likeness to the divine image, for his likeness to the divine image, but also the world as a divine creation. This idea that the world is created by God is a fundamental um, assumption of Calvinism. And as it once placed to the front the great principle that there is a particular grace which works salvation, so this is a fundamental insight of Calvinism, there is God's grace in a particular way that works salvation for humanity, but also a common grace by which God, maintaining the life of the world, relaxes the curse which rests upon it, arrests its process of corruption, and thus allows the untrammeled development of our life in which to glorify himself as creator. This is a really fundamental idea in Calvinism, that there's not only this special grace that saves us and forgives our sins, there's also a common grace that's given to all humanity because of God's love for his creation, where he actually restrains the corruption of sin, and he restrains the effects of the fall and the curse that, that should be in some sense there. For all, because he loves his world. He loves what he has made. God is committed to what he has made. One of the places to see this scripturally is in Genesis 9 with the Noahic covenant after the flood. God's commitment that, that, there will, that the seasons will always come, that there will be this continuance of creation. Because of this idea of the common grace, Kuiper writes, thus domestic life regained its independence. Trade and commerce realized their strength and liberty, Art and science were set free from every ecclesiastical bond and restored their own inspirations. And man began to understand the subjection of all nature, 
with its hidden forces and treasures to himself as a holy duty. That word holy there is really important. That actually all these things, right? Domestic life, trade and commerce, art and science. These are not just duties. The things you do, you know, so you can give money to church and pray on Sunday. But they're actually holy duties in and of themselves. They're imposed upon you by the original ordinances of paradise. Have dominion over them. To praise God in the church and to serve him in the world, that's a great summary of Calvinism, right? To praise God in the church and serve him in the world became the inspiring impulse. And in the church, strength was to be gathered by which to resist temptation and sin in the world, right? You're in church to, in some ways, um, be strengthened so that you live out your life in the world in a faithful way in service to Christ. Thus, puritanic sobriety went hand in hand with the reconquest of the entire life of the world. And Calvinism gave the impulse to that new development which dared to face the world with the Roman thought. Here quotes from Latin. Basically, it means, if I am a human being, nothing human is alien to me, is what that quote means. Um, and it comes out of Roman literature. Um, if I'm a human being, there's nothing human that is alien to me, right? Does that make sense? That the redemption of all human life um, because of these because of God's um, commitment to his creation, that all life is lived before him. And then he concludes with these words. I'll just read this and we'll do a question or two. Thus it is shown that Calvinism has a sharply defined starting point of its own for the three fundamental relations of all human existence. Our relation to God, to man, and to the world. For our relation to God, an immediate fellowship of man with the eternal, independently of priest or church. For the relation of man to man, the recognition in each person of human worth, which is his by virtue of his creation after the divine likeness, and therefore of the equality of all men before God and his magistrate. And for our relation to the world, the recognition that in the whole world the curse is restrained by grace. The curse is restrained by grace. That the life of the world is to be honored in its independence. It has value in and of itself. And that we must in every domain discover the treasures and, de- and develop the potencies. I love the way that he talks about that, right? In every domain of our life, art, science, domestic life, literature, music, right? Whatever it might be, technology, Discover the treasures and develop the potencies hidden by God in nature and in human life. They're out there waiting for us to discover and to develop the treasures and potencies of God's created world. Are there any thoughts or questions about this? I know there's a lot there. I just want to put it before you. And Any questions or thoughts or comments about the way that Kuiper here is articulating Calvinism as a basic approach to life. Yeah, Sarah. Yeah, 
it's absolutely similar. I mean, there's nothing wrong with social justice in and of itself, right? We, we want, um, yeah, so, good, yeah, so Sarah was talking about this, this bit where he talks about the liberty of man and the equality before God because of our being made in the image of God um, politically and socially. Isn't there, are there some connections there to social justice as we talk about it today? So I'm just saying, yeah, absolutely, there is. And I think there's nothing wrong with us. We, as Christians, we should not be afraid of the word social justice, um, but we need to realize that that's today a, that's a buzzword, and it can mean a lot of different things, depending on who's using it and how they're using it. And certainly, as Christians, we want to define justice according to, to the Bible, to the Word of God. But certainly, that justice has a social dynamic, I think we would say, as Christians and as Calvinists, quote-unquote, um, we would say that that justice is not only within the walls of the church that God wants to see enacted and that Jesus is actually enacting um, in his reign, um, but it has a social component. But we, yeah, we need to be very careful about how we define things like equality and how we define um, what, what is just. And we need to not, you know, assume that we just can figure that out as human beings, um, but actually we need the word of God to tell us what is justice. Um, I think that's that's how I would talk about that. But yeah, I don't. I think certainly there are implications there for our current social justice debates. I think Kathina had a hand. Did you have a hand? Right. Yeah, that's right. And I think we're seeing that work itself out in today's political society and dis- discourse that takes place. Um, and Kathina was just saying, basically, she appreciates uh, Kuiper's emphasis on the distinctions that we have um, with, the, with modernism, with the world, that this fundamental idea that we're created by God creates a great gap, basically, in our dialogue with those who don't share that assumption. And yeah, we have, I think we have to be careful about that and think about that as we, as we dialogue with others. Um, yeah, one more. Jeremy and then and Kinder, if we have time. Make it brief. Yeah, I would. I mean, we could talk about that about what age we're in. I would argue that we're still, we're we're dealing with modernism today. I would, I think, I think that. Well, no, I I mean the whole culture. I I really don't buy the. I think we're we're we could call it late modernity, if, late modernity if we want, but we're still. I think we're still in modernism today. We're working out the same, in my in my view, the same kinds of principles that were enacted in the Enlightenment and. But, I mean, we could talk about that further. We could debate that idea, full of philosophical idea of, yes, Kinder. Oh, you didn't have a question. I'm sorry, I thought, I, oh, oh, Tama was. 
Revolution, yes, ma'am. Uh, the French Revolution, no king but me. Right. American Revolution, no king but Jesus. That's the battle that we still fight today. Sure, sure. Yeah, there's, there's, that's, a, that's one way of putting it, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, let's, let's stand up and pray. Father, we give um, thanks to you um, for your goodness, the way in which you equip us, um, not only the scriptures, but in the history of the Christian tradition, which is behind us, Father. Um, we're thankful for that tradition. We're thankful for Abraham Kuyper and for the way in which he uh, is working out for us some of these key ideas um, in the scriptures. We pray that you'd help us to be uh, good students, to be learned, um, not only um, in our modern age, but uh, students of the way that your spirit has been at work in the church uh, throughout the ages. And we pray that you would help us to grow in that kind of wisdom. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.